0: Tonight we're going to continue our way through the book of 1 Samuel, but before we do that, I'd like to read for you a beautiful description of the gospel, which is the reality that no matter what our circumstances are today, that if you're in Christ, this is the reality for us. And then let's just take a a moment to pray and to thank God and to praise Him for this gospel. For many of us, we've heard this a lot And our hearts can grow sadly calloused to the incredible promises that we have over our lives. So, uh, listen as I read from 1 Peter. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, he might, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, church. For you... We're straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. What good, good news that is for us. We pray and just silently uh, praise God for that reality that even though you were straying, He bore your sin not in your body, but in His body. Father, as we come before you tonight, we thank you for the gospel. Father, I've enjoyed this spiritual reality in my life for two decades and I'm so excited about it. I'm so thankful for it. Thank you for dying for me. Father, would you make us a people who who feel this in our hearts, who are amazed and in, in awe of the fact that you paid it all and so now we owe you everything. Father, we do confess that tonight we need you, but we recognize that you've met our need in Christ. So build our faith and accomplish the purposes that you have for us in our hearts and in our life tonight, we pray. Amen. So now if you'll flip over to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is very different than the passage I just read. Tonight we're going to talk about what happens when you lose your donkeys. I'm serious. What happens when you lose your donkeys? (laughs) Tonight we're going to pick up our study. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10 uh, tonight. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in this exciting and peculiar book. Last week in chapter 8, we saw what Israel did, which to us seems to be unthinkable. They rejected Yahweh as their king, and they chose instead to have a king like the other nations. One who would go out and fight their battles for them, even though they already had a king, and even though they already had a king who fought their battles for them very, very effectively. Yahweh is the God who thunders, and their enemies are defeated, yet in terrible, disgusting idolatry. They rejected God as their king and chose to have a, a king from among them. Not only did they reject God as their king, but we saw that they also ignored the warnings that were given to them about kings. Remember, what do kings do? Kings just take and take and take and take. And this is completely different than God, the God they rejected, because God doesn't take God gives. He is full to overflowing. He has no need for anything. And so he, out of the overflow of his abundance, gives to us what we do not deserve. And out of the hardness of their hearts, Israel rejected God and they rejected his warning and chose instead to do what was right in their own eyes. And so God did to them what he does so often. He just gave them over to their desires. They wanted a king, God said, fine, you'll have a king, but it will go bad for you. This is so often how we see God's judgment expressed in the Bible, when God gives us over to the danger of our sinful desires. One of the prayers that I pray for my children so often, one of the prayers I pray even for myself is, God, don't let me be successful in my sin. Stop me. Let me feel the consequences quickly. So if you're not familiar with the story of Israel, you might think that it's over for them. They have rejected their God and their king, and now they're going to get a king uh, of, of, of man. God's people have rejected God himself and surely you would think that would void out all of his promises. Surely this will spoil the plans that that God has had for Israel. The plan, you remember the promise to to bless them and that through them he would use them to be a blessing to to all the nations. But you see that's not how God works. A little sin or even a lot of sin does not spoil God's plans. Aren't you thankful for that? Tonight what we'll see in 1st Samuel 9 and 10 is that in response to Israel's sinful desires, God will select and anoint a king for them, a king for Israel. And even though this is going to cause a lot of problems in his in, in Israel's history, we're going to see that God is still working in spite of sin. God is working in spite of sin to keep his promises and to save his people. Now we have a lot of text before us tonight. We're going to try to cover from 1 Samuel 9, 1 all the way up to 10, 16. So instead of taking 25 minutes to read it all, I'm going to read pieces and summarize uh, summarize as we go. But I think I've got about five lessons or so uh, that perhaps we can learn from this text. But let's start by reading over in chapter 9, verse 1. 1 Samuel 9, 1. There is a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we are asking for your blessing upon the reading and the hearing and the proclaiming of your word. We recognize again tonight that without you, we can do nothing that is helpful. So we pray, Father impart your word to our hearts. I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, blow away and be forgotten, because we need to hear not from man, but from you. Bear fruit in our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things that we're going to see in this text is that God's sovereignty is not just over the big things of life, but is over the small things of life. We see God's sovereignty in the mundane and the ordinary. I'm not big on sermon titles, but if I had to choose a sermon title, and I suppose I will tomorrow, if I had to choose a sermon title, I would probably call this God's mercy in the mundane. God's mercy in the mundane. The story begins by introducing to us a new character in the book of Samuel. A guy who is prominent and will be a major part in the chapters to come. It is... Saul, a Benjamite, the son of Kish, a man of wealth. Now, I know that when I'm gone, no one will describe me as they may they may describe me as tall, but they will not describe me as exceedingly handsome. However, Saul has lived on for millennium as being both tall and being handsome, right? If there was a Mr. Israel contest in Israel, Mr Saul would have would have won Mr Israel right and as the story begins with what to us seem like very normal, everyday sorts of events. Now for me it's not particularly normal to lose donkeys, but you get you kind of get the idea. For 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 them, that would probably be pretty normal. And so Saul's father instructs him to, you know, go take a guy and you know go find the lost donkeys. Of course, donkeys for them would have been a significant part of their livelihood and their wealth, and so I'm not making light of the, the issue. It's just that it's probably um, <laughs> probably happened before. And uh, some commentators were joking, I find this humorous, that it's not a good sign for Israel when their future shepherd king couldn't find his own donkeys, right? Because not only did he lose them, but he doesn't find them. Someone else finds them. So, you know, tuck that away and take take what you want from that. Um, not Things are not looking good. But after looking and looking, Saul decides that they need to turn back empty-handed because uh, because at some point his father's going to stop caring about the donkeys and care about Saul, right? But his servant makes the suggestion that they should go and see the man of God, right? Samuel, the prophet or the seer who is in the city and apparently, you know, he can tell us where the donkeys are. Well, the text describes in some detail the problem is what are we going to pay him with, right? We're going to go get, you know, our donkey fortune told, so we got to pay him something, we don't have any money. Well, lo and behold, the servant just so happened to have a little bit of money, a fourth of a shekel of silver left over, so they agree, we'll pay him with this. So they set off on their way. Then in verses 11 through 13, it describes how they just so happen to meet some women on the way who told them specifically where they could find the prophet Samuel. They were actually going in the wrong direction, and so they just so happened to meet someone. And then as they were walking into the city, they just so happened, by the way, there's no just so happening in God's world, but you get what I'm saying. They just so happened to bump into Samuel. Look down at verses 14 through 17. Let's read these together. Chapter 9. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He is it who shall restrain my people. Okay, so up until this point in the story, in verses 1 through 14, All of the narrative seems to have no meaning to us, right? Why do we care about a handsome tall guy who lost his donkeys and can't find them, right? We wouldn't care about them at all until we get to verses 14 through 17, where God breaks into the middle of the story and gives us a hint that everything here looks boring and normal, but I'm at work. I'm at work. Work And it gives us a sense of new meaning. We could say that this is a divine interruption in the text. And now we know, now we know that God is up to something. Before there were no signs, no way for us to know, no way for Saul to know that God was up to something. But now we know because he told us. And what I find so intriguing about this story is how normal everything is. Everything just appears to be so normal. It's a long chain of ordinary events, right? Just another day on the farm and another road trip out looking for the donkeys. And we just so happened to scrape some money together we had forgotten about. We just so happened to meet some women. We just so happened to bump into Samuel. And then God had just told Samuel in verse 16, "'Tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin.'" I think this is the first lesson for us in the story. That our God is sovereign over the everyday, normal, ordinary events of our life. He's sovereign over all of it. Up until this point, everything looks like just the little annoyances of life until we realize that this whole affair, from beginning to end, has been under God's direction. Is there any part of our life that is outside of God's direction? No. Even the situation of the lost donkeys, right? The annoying work situation. It's all under God's direction. Karis has a book that she likes to read. It's called, If You Give a Pig a Pancake, right? Anyone read it recently? There's also Give a Mouse a Cookie and Give a Moose a Muffin and a Donkey a Wallop on the head or something, right? But the story, it's a riveting story. The story is of a little girl who's sitting there eating her own breakfast, minding her own business, and up comes a pig in the window. And the pig apparently would like to have a pancake, so the little girl gives her a pancake, and once the pig gets a pancake, the, pan- the pig decides that he would like some syrup to to go with it. And once he has some syrup, he gets sticky. And so once he is sticky, then he needs to have a bath. Once he gets in the bath, he decides he needs some toys. So the girl goes and looks for her rubber ducky. So the pig sees the rubber ducky, reminds him of growing up on the farm, and so he gets homesick. So he decides that they're going to take a trip back home. So they go look for the suitcase. When they look for the suitcase, they find the tap shoes, and before. He you know it the little girl's playing a piece on the piano while the pig is tap dancing in the living room right and 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 the, you know one of the points of the stories is see how things you know lead from one thing to another but at some point you kind of get this feeling of it's like how did I end up tap dancing with a pig in you know in the middle of the living room have you ever had that sensation right how did I ever end up doing this if you've spent any time on the internet right? You're like, why? What am I doing? How did I, what did I, how did I get here, right? I never could have foreseen that giving a pig a pancake would have led to me tap dancing in the living room. And not to be silly, but we can't foresee it, but God can. God knows every circumstance, every potential cause and effect, every single possible world, He governs a world in which millions and billions of people make decisions that make all sorts of impacts over our life. And he sits back and rules over all of it without even breaking a sweat. What kind of God is this? And this is how he often works in our lives through seemingly random, meaningless, unconnected events. Guys, I don't know about you, but this is a truth that my heart cannot hear enough. Cuz I can think back over the details of my life from the past and see how God is working, but when it comes to today, I'm like surely there's nothing good that's going to happen out of this. Surely this is the time he dropped the ball and there's no there's no meaning or at least that's how my that's how my heart responds so often. It feels like the circumstances of our lives are mundane, ordinary and Boring, Or sometimes even worse, like we saw with James earlier this year, so often the circumstances of our lives are not just boring, but they're painful. And they're full of difficulties and trials and suffering. Yet we come once again to the precious biblical truth that God is absolutely sovereign over the circumstances of your life. We don't have time to go through and talk about all of the circumstances going on in our lives. But as you think through them and as you struggle through them and as you pray through them and as you are anxious about them and talk about them, just remember, God is sovereign and he's working for your good. Regardless of what season of life you're in right now, old, young, good, bad, winter, summer, regardless of the season, we can rest assured that God is up to something, not just in the big things, and not just for the Bible characters, but for all of us in everyday sorts of circumstances. Proverbs chapter 16 reminds us that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Aren't we all able to look back on certain events in our lives from our perspective now and say, yes, I know God was working. I, total, I get it now. He was working back then. He was getting me ready for, for this, or he was teaching me this, or if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't have learned this about him. I can see it now, but when we're in the moment, we can't see it. So the point is, is that get enough of the history in your heart. Not just your own history, not just the history of other saints, but get enough of God's providential history recorded in the Bible. Get that stored up in your heart so that when it's dark today and when you don't understand today, you've got light and you don't reject him as king. Don't despair Perhaps you've been around long enough to learn some lessons like this, right? You've seen how God has worked and worked and, you know, and maybe you come to a point where you're saying, okay, all right, Lord, I know you're doing something, all right? I, I heard a sermon about this a few dozen times, or I, I've learned about this in the past. I've read the book of James. I know you're doing something. I just don't know what. Could you just show me, right? Could you just show me? Can you just let me in on the secret, That's not how God usually works, is it? That's not how He usually works. Proverbs 20 reminds us, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? His ways are not like ours. Instead, we see time and time again that God sets up our circumstances, the big crises and the everyday sorts of lost donkeys to teach us to trust Him. Just like here in 1 Samuel 9, God usually does not let us in on the secrets of his providence. So when you feel like the Lord has left you in the dark, let your heart feast on the sovereignty of God that we have seen in the big and the everyday normal circumstances. And then just keep doing whatever you're doing. Whatever God has called you to do. If you're out looking for donkeys, keep looking for donkeys. I know some of you feel like you are doing that. Um, especially if you have small children. Um, but keep doing whatever it is you're doing. But there's another lesson i like to point out here. And this is a great delight. Is In this text, I think we see mercy for sinners. There's a great and staggering comfort for us in this text for those of us who recognize ourselves as sinners. I'm not just talking about the big kind of broad category that we've done some things wrong, but who see ourselves as people who struggle with sin, not just last week, but now and today. For those of us who know that we grieve the Lord and for those of us who look into our hearts and and see so much remaining sin, You see, Israel had rejected God, and it wasn't the first time, and it's not going to be the last time. It was, in fact, just another installment in their long line of sinning sin for which God had judged them for, and turned them over to the Philistines. And now we see in just this colossal way, I can't even get my mind around this type of rejection of God, but now they've rejected God as their king, and now they're under the oppression of the hand of the Philistines. And then look back down in verse 16, chapter 9 verse 16. I'll read this whole verse again. Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Do you see that? Do you hear the voice of mercy? Israel was suffering. Why? Because of their sin period, right? Israel was suffering because of their sin, yet their cry made it to the ears of the God they rejected. He still had pity. That is amazing to me. Israel's rejection of God does not nullify his mercy, Even though Yahweh sees Israel's idolatry, even though he sees that as she cries out for a king that she's rejecting him, he also gives ear to hear her distress in the midst of her sin. Israel's stupidity is not enough to quench the mercies of God. These foolish, stubborn people are still the objects of the compassion of God. I'll tell you what, folks, as a sinner... That's good news for me. That's good news for me. Because so often the cries in my life are brought on because of the sin that I've committed. And the sin that I am dealing with. Our sin does not dry up the fountain of God's kindness. Our stupidity does not ruin his pity. It multiplies it. It multiplies it. And friends, we should be a people who strive to have that kind of mercy for others as they sin, as they sin against us, or as their sins affect us. Psalm 103.13 reminds us, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. Oh, dear sinners, what great comfort we have to, re- to remind ourselves of tonight that though our sins are like scarlet, you have not outsinned God's mercy. And you're not going to tomorrow. What a precious promise. He will not forsake us in our sins. Though His anger is fierce towards sin, the heart of God is tender towards sinners. Though his anger is fierce towards sin, the heart of God is tender towards sinners. 2 Timothy 2 reminds us that if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Church, let every fresh occurrence of sin in your life be an opportunity to relearn the tender mercy of God. As if you had never heard of it before. Relearn it every time and you'll find fresh joy in your heart. <laughs> Why does he do that? Why does he do that? God hears our cries for mercy even when we're crying out from our own sin caused mess. But we see a third lesson in this text. Let's look down and read uh, chapter 17 or verse 17. Let's see here. Hang on. Let me give you a little summary first. So, so what we're what we're reading about, and what some of what we're skipping over, is we're reading about from verses 17 on to the end of the chapter. We read about Samuel and Saul when they actually come together and meet, right? And then we read a description of the various honors that Samuel so, shows to Saul. He sits him at a big feast. He gives him the best cut of meat. Apparently, it was a leg, right? He uh, invites him to spend the night at his house. He promises a meeting with the with the famous prophet the next day. And then we come down to, let's read in verse 26. Let's do that instead. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel, and went out to the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then, 10 verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and he will save them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So we're seeing Samuel secretly anoint Saul as prince. It says prince, not king here, which is interesting, but he anoints him as prince over his people. And then in the next nine or ten verses or so, Samuel goes on to tell Saul about three very specific signs that are going to confirm his word. Ways to see that this is actually from God. There's Three signs here. The first is that, uh, we see this in verse 2, is that near the tomb of Rachel, Saul will meet two men, and they will tell him, your donkeys have been found. Right? Don't worry, your donkeys have been found. Sign number one. Sign number two. Then he will meet three men on the way to worship at Bethel, and they'll be carrying all their sacrificial supplies, bread and wine, and they will share some of these things with him, and they'll check on his welfare. And then a third sign is that he will meet a group of prophets returning from the high place, and then we come down to verse 6, chapter 10, verse 6. This is the third sign. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with him and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Verse 9, when he returned, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. Okay, so what can we learn from all this? What can we learn? Well, it seems to be a tediously detailed account that can be difficult to, to make sense of. But I think one of the first things that we should notice is that even though God is actually giving Israel a king like the nations, these are still God's people. These are still Yahweh's heritage. And so the king is going to be Yahweh's man. God is going to choose the king. He will not be a king like the kings of the other nations in some ways. That's just not how God does things. The point of Samuel giving Saul three very detailed signs is to prove, I think, that his power is not coming from himself or the people, but it's coming from the Lord. This is God's authorization of the king, which is a reminder to us that God is the one who truly holds the power. Israel may be getting a king, but God's not giving up his throne, right? God is the one who truly holds the power. Neither Saul nor any of the kings that follow him will be left to their own ruling devices. They're not like the kings of the other nations, free to rule as they please. They still rule and serve at the pleasure of another, they still report to Yahweh. This is especially highlighted in verse 8. Samuel tells Saul that, you know, after all these things happen, which they do immediately, that's how things work in God's, with God's promises, he's to wait for seven days and then Samuel's going to come tell him what to do, all right? So this is to be a picture of the way kingship works in Israel. The king does not have free reign, right? He does not do as he pleases. The king is always to wait upon and then obey the word of the Lord, the king is always to wait upon and obey the word of the Lord. We see that Saul is to rule in two parts. He, number one, receives the spirit of the Lord. All right, that's what we see this third sign. He receives the spirit of the Lord, and then he receives the word of the Lord through Samuel. So you have the spirit of the Lord, and then the word of the Lord and those going together. So with this in mind, who's really in charge of Israel, right? Right? God picks the king, God gives him a new heart, God gives him orders through his prophet, right? And then God gives him his spirit. Like, this is all God doing this, right? God, God is working. It's one thing to admit that God is sovereign over the lost donkeys. It's another thing to admit that God is sovereign over kings and their hearts. What a promise. Samuel is going out of his way to make the point to us that it is only through the spirit of the Lord and the word of the Lord that Saul will find success and prosperity. I think we see and we've seen the same lesson in Israel's history so far when they tried to abuse the power of the, God, the Ark of God. We've seen you cannot separate the blessing of God's presence, His Spirit, from His Word. You can't enjoy the blessings of God and disregard His law. You can't separate the two. You can't enjoy the blessing and the freedom that God intends while you disregard the Word of the Lord. God's Word always accompanies His Spirit, and His Spirit always accompanies His Word. And the same is true for us today. We have no reason to expect that we will enjoy the power and the presence and the blessing of the Lord when we disregard and trample God's word. This was not just an Old Testament problem. Jesus said the same thing in his teaching when he responded to his critics in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You can't, you can't do that. You must Submit, and once again, we're reminded that blessings come in the Christian life only through obedience, through obedience to god 's word, and never apart from it. But we come to a fourth lesson, third or fourth lesson, I don 't know. We see that God equips us to do his work. God equips us to do His work. In verses 9 through 13, we see that all of the signs that were given to Saul came to pass. But then the author zooms in on one specific sign. I think I already read this. Did I read 9 through 13? Nope. Let's read it now. Verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. Verse 10. When they came to Gibeoth, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he, Saul, prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What's come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And the man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Okay, so the author is zooming in and highlighting this one fulfillment of the Spirit of God rushing upon Saul. There's been a lot of debate over what this means, but I think that it would be safe for us to say that I don't think that this means that Saul was converted there's a couple reasons for that. Number one is that Saul rejected God later in his life and God pulled his spirit away from him. And the second is that we see all throughout Saul's life, Saul did not have an inclination to obey God's word. And we've seen that again and again that God's people obey God's word through the spirit. I think that what's going on here is that God was equipping his king He was equipping him to do what he had been tasked to do. We see this in a lot of ways throughout the Old Testament, especially like like when God equipped metal workers to make the ark. It says that God gave them his spirit or the way God gave Samson his spirit for for supernatural strength against the Philistines. And I think this is a reminder to us that, that whatever God calls us to do, he's going to equip us to do. And this is especially true for the Christian with the Spirit dwelling in us. I was meditating on this today and really comforted by this. It's so helpful for us at the times when obedience seems nearly impossible. When you're trying to love a difficult person, or when you're trying to serve in a sacrificial way, or when you're trying to maintain discipline over some struggle in your life, some habit. What a good reminder to know that God will equip us through His Spirit to do what He has called us to do. Like when there just seems to be no way to love that person after she said those things about you. Or like there's no way that you can be kind to your husband after he has repeatedly hurt you or insulted you. But church, we should remember that God never calls us to a kingdom task without equipping us for the work. He's going to equip us for the work through his spirit. And what a comfort it is for us in the face of towering difficulties and seemingly impossible circumstances that God equips us for the work he calls us to. But then there's one more strange scene that's going on here. We see Saul, the normal old son of Kish, he comes out prophesying not entirely sure what this would have looked like, but it's apparently pretty public. And all of the people look on with astonishment. Verse 11 says, what's come over the son of Kish, right? They were so surprised by this that they made it into a proverb, right? I think this is funny. Is Saul also among the prophets, right? It's, um, It's like a saying, stranger things have happened, right? Or if such and such can do it, then anyone can do it. Or, you know, wonders never cease. It's it's a picture for us that it's just a reminder to us that God loves to do things in unexpected, unlikely ways. He doesn't work like us. He does things differently. And this is a familiar biblical pattern for us we see God regularly defying human expectations and raising up unlikely people, really unlikely people. You remember Gideon, right? You remember God uses unlikely people to do his work. Why? So that Gideon doesn't get glory, but that God gets the glory. This is his pattern. Friends, our God is full of surprises. So don't be surprised if he props you up in some really weak, difficult circumstance where you feel like you can't do anything Right? Expect for the Lord to work. We come to a final part of the story. and Let's call it the secret of the kingdom. I think the story closes in something of an unusual way. It's, uh, it's a conversation with Saul's uncle. Right? It sounds like the beginning of a comedy movie. like A, a conversation with Saul's uncle. Look down in verse 14. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly about the donkeys that they had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Okay. Why in the world would Saul... Would, why would the author of Samuel include this? Right? Remember, the thing about the Bible is that all of it is there for a reason. And so, and so his uncle asked him, what, you know, what happened? Tell me everything. And Saul's like, hey, you said the donkeys were found. That's clearly not the bulk of what happened, right? He went to a feast where he was the the, the, the guest of honor, right? He had a big old piece of meat. He got to spend the night in Saul's and Samuel's house. And, and he didn't say anything about the prophesying or about being the first king of Israel. Left that part out, right? But as a matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And so the story comes to a close and he leaves his uncle in the dark. But if you think about it, we're all kind of in the dark here, right? Everybody is kind of in the dark. No one really knows what's going on, right? There's a theme of secrecy that kind of weaves through the story. You know, Kish and Saul, or the son of Oh, sorry, Saul and his buddy, right, and his father Kish, they, they thought they were out just looking for donkeys. But they didn't know quite all that was going on. They were out looking for donkeys and they found a kingdom. When Saul is anointed, it was done secretly outside of the eyesight of his servant, what made Saul join in on the prophesying, right? We don't we're not sure. Why was it Saul? When is all this going to take place? It's not just us, but all the people in the story. Even Saul doesn't even really know what's going to happen and what's going to go on. Why would the author choose to include the random conversation with Saul's uncle if he didn't want to make a point about the secrecy of the kingdom? And that's what's so strange about the story. Saul goes off to find some donkeys, and instead he finds a kingdom. But even he doesn't even really know what this new kingdom entails. He had nothing to say to his uncle because he didn't know. He didn't know what was going on. I think this is included for us to remind us that most of the time God's real work is hidden from us. Most of the time we can't see what he's doing. We can see that the donkeys are lost but we can't tell what God's up to. We can't tell what he's up to. There are things that are happening out of sight, below the surface. We just have to trust him. You see, even though Israel was getting themselves into this massive mess by choosing human kings, God was already working on a rescue plan to save his people. They just couldn't see it yet. Who would have ever thought that God was making the way for the one true king, Through some lost donkeys. You see, when Israel cried out for a worldly king, God sent his answer a king, Saul, the anointed one, which literally means the Messiah, right? But he wouldn't be a very good Messiah. He didn't do very well at saving Israel. Yes, God would use him to hold back the Philistines for a while, but eventually God's people would cry out for another king. They'd realize that it wasn't just that they needed a king, but they needed the king, the true king, not just a king like the nations. You see, Saul came onto the scene as a worldly king an impressive king. He was tall. He was handsome. But as we'll soon see, Saul did not keep the ways of the Lord. Time and time again, he refused God and chose to go his own way instead. He looked like a king, but he lacked the heart of a king. How different was Saul from Christ? Think of the true king of Israel, who on Palm Sunday rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Unlike Saul, he can not even find his donkeys, right? That's a bad king. Christ was not tall. Christ was not handsome. He had nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. Unlike Saul, Christ never went his own way. But he always did what his father commanded him. God saves in unusual ways, doesn't he? No one would have expected that a child from Bethlehem would save the world. Israel had no choice but to accept Saul as their king. But you and I have a choice. Everything about Saul's character and as we'll see about his rule is still represented in the world today. And we have a choice on which king we will serve. Will we give our allegiance to the values and the worldly systems of our day? Will we choose to hang on to our idols instead of the one true Lord? Or will we give our allegiance to Christ who was sent by God to deliver his people, not how they expected, right? They expected a military political king. Christ didn't come like that at all. He came to deliver them from their sins. The true king, Jesus, gave his life to pay for our sins, and has now given us his spirit to empower us to obey God's word as we wait for the day when he'll come in power and glory. And let's get one thing clear, folks. Next time he comes back, it will be in a military political way. Our king rules. Who will you serve? Let's pray. Father, we pray that in our hearts you would build our faith as we've heard, as we've heard, and as we consider your word. I pray, Father, that you would indeed make us a people who trust that even in the most difficult, bleakest, darkest, most painful of circumstances, that you're working. Make us confident in you, we pray. Amen. You may stand and go in peace, Church.